having the, the Word of God now at this point, and we're opening our Bibles, please, to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. <clears throat> Welcome everyone who's here, and we trust the Lord will be with us now at this time as we consider God's Word. Welcome those online at this stage as well. And so let's read the first two verses of this chapter. I just want to focus on them this evening. 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 1 and 2, where Paul says, Finally, brethren, pray for us <clears throat> that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified, even as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men for all men have not faith. And the Lord will bless the reading of these verses to our hearts. We'll just have another word of prayer before we come to the, the word. Heavenly Father, be with us as we wait at thy feet. We thank thee for the word of God, for him that we have sung that reminds us of his enduring nature. We rejoice that thou didst move holy men of God of old to bring the word of God, to have it Therefore, in our hands, and to have it in every generation throughout time, Lord, we bless Thee for that time when the Word came to us, came with freshness and power. We thank Thee, O Lord, for the preaching of the Word during the week gone by in our Bible conference. And we bless Thee for all that was brought out of the book of Jonah by Thy servant as he was guided and led and moved by the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we pray that Thou wilt be with us now as we look at these verses for a little time, and may our hearts be encouraged once again. And so be with us and bless us, we pray. Cover us beneath the shadow of thy wing, for we ask all this in Jesus' name, for his sake and for his eternal glory. Amen and amen. Now at the time of the writing of this epistle, the Apostle Paul was proceeding onwards in his second missionary journey. It is no surprise, therefore, to find that he sets before the Thessalonian church this urgent appeal. That's really what it is in these first two verses. Brethren, finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified, even as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. The word for pray in verse 1 has a continuous force to it, and therefore the essence of his plea was pray constantly for us, pray continually for us and our ministry as we go on into the next stage of, of this missionary journey. Gospel ministry does require the prayers of God's people. That is a, an incessant need. It's a perennial need. A few nights ago, our Bible conference ended, you had prayed for it, and I believe the Lord really answered prayer and blessed richly and mightily as a servant brought the Word of God. And yet there's need to pray on and to pray over what was preached during the Bible conference by Dr. Pollock. And I want just to impress that upon you tonight. We don't want to forget about the conference now that it has ended. It's a very busy time, and you might want to relax a bit, as it were, but we must not relax in prayer. We want to keep on praying over what was brought uh, to our hearts 
during those nights of the week gone by. And so with that in mind, I just want to consider this exhortation in verse number one and verse number two from three perspectives. We have the, the message that is brought before us. It says, uh, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified. And so the term there, the word of the Lord, signifies that it is the message of the gospel that is provided in the word of the Lord for the salvation of souls, and it's over that that we are to pray. I want you to turn now to 1 Peter 1, to a, a passage that is very much related to what we have here in 2 Thessalonians 3. So 1 Peter 1, and look with me please at the verse number 25, and here you've got the same phrase, the word of the Lord. It says, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. And so here's the same term, but notice Peter's statement. This is the word of the Lord which by the gospel is preached unto you. And so to preach the word of the Lord is therefore to preach the gospel. And the preaching of the gospel, of course, is the preaching of the message of redemption. And of course, Dr. Pollock brought it out very clearly from the book of Jonah as he was preaching about Jonah going to Nineveh to preach the word of God and so forth. And he brought in all that detail about what the message actually was. We have simply those words that God said to Jonah, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And yet we learn in the conference that there's much more, obviously, to what Jonah must have said in Nineveh than that. He was actually there to preach the word of the Lord and to bring the gospel. And we heard that so clearly brought out in what our brother had to say. And that is the message of redemption. And we must always keep that in mind. When it says that we're to pray that the word of the Lord will run and be glorified, when we read here about Peter saying, uh, the, the word of the Lord endureth forever, and then goes on to say, this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. We can hear ringing through all of that language, the great uh, tones and the great note of redemption. Now that is brought out here in First Peter chapter 1, and what precedes this verse 25? Because in the preceding verses you will find that Peter is dealing with the whole issue and the whole subject of redemption. He says in verse 18, as much, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. So he uses the verb redeemed, and he tells us that redemption is not by uh, silver and gold. In other words, what he's saying there is we're not to go back to the Old Testament ceremonies. In that system, they had silver, they had gold in their temple worship or in their, uh, their ceremonial system at various stages or in various ways. And that's really what Peter is showing to these people here, many of whom are Jewish believers, actually. Peter was the apostle to the circumcision, to the Jews. And therefore, he's making it very clear that while in the Old Testament, silver and gold were used as symb uh, in a symbolic way of redemption, 
that does not mean that people ever were redeemed by silver and gold, and certainly does not mean that now, because the silver and the gold of the Old Testament pointed forward to Christ. You see, silver especially was the metal that signified redemption. Not going into that tonight, it's very clear in the Old Testament. And so he makes that abundantly plain to his readers here, that it's by the precious blood of Christ that we are redeemed. And so that's the context of then going on to say in verse 25, this is the word of the Lord, which by the gospel is preached unto you. The gospel is the gospel of redemption, and it's redemption through the blood of Christ. And you'll go on to find from verse 18 that Peter expands on that. If you look at it with me just a little longer here before we go any farther, the focus is on the Lamb, as he shows in verse 19, the precious blood of Christ is of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And he speaks of different features that have to do with Christ, the Lamb of God, his purity, a lamb without blemish and without spot, his passion, that is his suffering, because you read of his blood, and you cannot read of the blood of the lamb without thinking of the shedding of that blood, through the suffering and the death that our Lord endured. And so his passion is in view there. There's also the thought of his position now in verse 21 there. It says, who by him do believe in God. Notice that. Who by him uh, do believe in God. How do we believe in God? We believe in God through the mediation of Christ. And so he goes on to say, that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory. There's the Lamb's position. So you have all those little details about Christ the Lamb. And what Paul or what Peter is saying here is that Christ the Lamb stands as the mediator through whom the sinner comes to God and in faith obtains the cleansing that is found in the Savior's blood. Look at verse 22. Seeing ye have, oh, seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth, through the Spirit. Wonderful words, brethren and sisters. Notice that. The moment you believed in Jesus Christ, that's what's meant by that language, seeing you've purified your souls in obeying the truth. As soon as you obeyed the truth, you were purified. Your heart was purified. As it says there, you purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit and so on. And so there's so much here about the gospel. It's the gospel of redemption. It's the gospel that revolves around Christ the Lamb and all that He is, all that He has done, where He now is, His mediation, where He stands on our behalf in heaven, or is seated there, we should say, at the right hand of the majesty in high. And so we are being shown what the message actually is over which we are to pray. And this is the message that has been preached by God's servants down through the generations of time. And the point is that when Paul asks for prayer, uh, that the word of the Lord will uh, run and be glorified, he's also saying that's the only message that there is. That's clearly inferred in his appeal for prayer. If you go back there to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 again, and look with me at that. Just, just dwell on those words. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified. He is surely saying, is he not, that there's only one message over which 
We are to pray because there's only one message of redemption. There's only one power that saves the soul. There's only one message that will edify the church. There's only one message that will pull down the strongholds of the devil. There's only one message by which God builds his church. It's exclusive. There is no other. And furthermore, no other message is needed, therefore. As so we're to take this to heart, this is the message, the essence of it, the exclusiveness of it, the effectiveness of it. You go right through all the ease you would like, and it's all there. And we are come tonight to pray over that message again, to pray over what was preached last week, to bathe it with prayer. I think that's what Paul means in 1 Corinthians 3 when he says there that he planted and Apollos watered. And certainly one of the things that's in view there in the watering process that Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 3 is just this, that we pray over the word that has gone out that's so important. That is so vital as we think about what uh, Paul is showing us here. And we all perhaps have heard instances of people who heard the Word of God maybe years ago. And at some point, long after they heard the Word of God, the Lord worked in those hearts and saved them. But somebody was praying for them. Maybe prayed initially and maybe... Maybe he gave up praying. I don't know. But the Lord heard the prayers eventually. You take that to heart tonight. Keep on praying for your loved ones, your families, your children, the young people, whoever it may be, your neighbors, your friends, who have heard the word of God. They've been under preaching, under instruction, under teaching. And the Lord's telling you and me tonight that we are to keep on praying over that word. You know why? Because it is the power of God unto salvation. And therefore, here's the message. But then there's also, in Paul's words here, the metaphor. He says, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course. And if you've got a Bible that shows this, the marginal reading is, uh, may run, may pray for us that the word of the Lord may run. And so he's actually employing there the, the metaphor or the figure of speech of the runner in the race. And Paul often does that. He uses that metaphor in many, many places as he writes his epistles. He always, or quite often, he brings us to that idea, that concept of the runner in the race. And that's what he's doing here in these words, that the word of the Lord may run. And so there's the thought again that what has been preached just doesn't fall to the ground. What, what God's word that goes forth doesn't falter and fail and stumble, but rather it runs like a racer, running with all his might. And that's what we need just to notice here. That's the metaphor. Now, that suggests a few things. If we have to pray that it will run, that means it's opposed. That means that there's confrontation uh, or there is combat in the whole thing. Uh, that's in view here. Uh, that's very clearly inferred or implied by what he says. And the, 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 the initiation of that confrontation, of course, lies with the devil himself. He is the one who uh, does his utmost to stop the word from running. 
And he does that in many, many ways. He is likened to the fowls of the air that come to pluck away the good seed. But there's another way in which the devil is described. If you turn into the first epistle, 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 18, you notice what Paul says there. He says, We would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. Satan hindered us. And those are words that are perennially important because here is what the devil wants to do. Paul's a preacher. He wants to go to the Thessalonians. He had endeavored to go on various occasions, he tells us, but the devil somehow or other hindered him. Now, the word hindered there signifies an influence or power being exercised to halt progress. The word hinder literally means to cut into. And the idea is of the devil actually placing an obstacle on a path, or the image is even more vivid than that. It's the imagery of someone cutting down trees and so on that fall across a path. That's the idea in that word hindered. And so we find here that the devil's a real foe. He is busy. He's engaged in seeking to hinder the whole progress and development of the Word of God. He doesn't want it to reach people. He doesn't want it to enter into hearts or find a lodging place in the souls of men and women or young people uh, or whoever it might be. And so there's the matter here of running a race that is unimpeded. The word running without any obstacle, without any opposition. But the point is the opposition, it does come. Now back in First or Second Thessalonians 3, in that second verse, we're given some idea of what Paul is really uh, getting at here in what he says when you read that verse. And that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. And so the obstacle is in view or implied because he says, pray that the word will run and there's the effort made to stop it. But here are those who actually are the the ones who create the obstacles. It says, unreasonable and wicked men. And you think about those words. And remember this, the devil uses men, just as God uses men, to do his work and to fulfill his will and his purposes. So Satan uses men, but here's the kind of men they are, unreasonable and wicked men. Now, the word wicked, of course, is very common in the New Testament, it signifies those who are given over to spiritual and moral corruption. And then you take the word unreasonable. That word unreasonable means out of place. And it signifies the idea of perversion. These are men who are perverted in their thinking, in their philosophies, in their agendas. And they are men, therefore, who are corrupt in themselves, corrupt in their own natures, corrupt in their own ways. And therefore, with regard to the things of God, they don't belong to that realm. They're out of place there. They don't belong there. They are corrupt men. They are perverted men. They have gone astray completely. They are on the wrong path in life. But they are busy in one way or another seeking to hinder the word of the living God and stop it 
from going forth. They're corrupt men, and that comes out. And they are the ones who want to throw an obstacle in the path of the gospel, the word of God, the message of redemption. They don't like it themselves. They don't want to hear it themselves. But in their perversity, they don't want others to hear it. They don't want our children to hear the gospel. That is why there's such a concerted effort to destroy the young and pervert their minds by all of the agendas that wicked, that uh, wicked and unreasonable men dream up and bring along and present and it's accepted as dressed up in glowing terms, deceitful terms, and people are led astray by it all. But it's the devil at work seeking to oppose the going forth of the gospel. They are men without Christ, you see, because it says in verse 2, all men have not faith, that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. The word men supplied here, and it's supplied correctly, because when Peter talks here, or sorry, Paul writes here about unreasonable and wicked men, he then immediately says, because all men don't have faith. In other words, all men do not believe in Christ. All men do not love Christ. All men do not love the gospel. And you know, that is such a contradiction, that truth of what is continually proclaimed by the ecumenists and by the liberals, that everybody loves God or everybody has the ability to love God and, and so forth. And yet the Bible is clear in this, that in order to love God, there must be saving faith in the heart. In order to love God and believe the gospel and rest in Jesus Christ, there has to be a work of grace done. Christ has to dwell in anybody who is going to be a lover of the truth or a lover of the gospel. And Paul says here that all men do not have faith. And that actually destroys the idea that everybody has the ability to believe. All they need is a wee bit of help. Paul says, all men do not have faith. Or some is saying here, all men have not faith. So that means that whatever proportion of humanity do not possess faith. They are not believers. They never will be. They will never be saved. I said that recently from the pulpit. And to say that today is abhorrent to people, that whatever proportion of the human race is going to be lost, they're not ever going to be saved. Because no man by nature is faith. Faith is the gift of God, whom he gives to those whom he intends to save. But the rest don't have faith. And therefore they are Christless. And in their Christlessness, they are opposed to the gospel. You think of where Paul was going on this journey. He was going on into the heart and soul of heathenism. In the cities of that day, in his third missionary journey, I just can't recollect now uh, where he was going. I think it was actually to Berea after this. And, and these unbelieving men actually followed him there. If you read the story in Acts carefully, wherever Paul went, they went. Wherever he preached, they went and they proclaimed their evil doctrines and their corrupt message. And, and, and brethren and sisters, it's no, it's no different today. We should not be surprised that people oppose the gospel or that uh, they, they don't like us in the open air, don't want us there, whatever it might be. And I firmly believe that 
The eye of ungodly, corrupt Christ as men is more and more being set on the faithful church, the faithful preachers of the Word of God in our day and times. But they're also combative men because it says that we may be delivered from from these men. And that means that they are an act of combat against the, the work of God and the things of God. And so there is this metaphor that he uses here, the Word of God running, and he tells us why we need to pray over it, that it will keep on running because there are opponents, there are uh, these men who are totally against it. But then notice, go back to those words in verse 1. What specifically are we to pray for? It says, pray that the Word of the Lord may have free course or run, but it doesn't stop there. It says this, and be glorified. And he carries a metaphor through there because the word glorified actually means crowned. Now, if you think about the runner in the race, he not only needs to run and run well, but if he's going to succeed, if he's going to be crowned, he must get to the finishing line and thereby be crowned with victory. And so Paul is asking us here tonight Uh, bringing upon our minds the great need to pray that the word of the Lord that Stephen Pollock preached will be crowned with success, will be crowned with the blessing of God, but just not his preaching, all the preaching of the men of God in our day and times. We need to pray over it. We don't know, we only know a few preachers, isn't that right? We don't know all the men of God across the world or all the preachers and teachers across the face of this earth. The Lord has His men. He has them everywhere. And we want to see what they are doing being crowned with success. Now, pray for us because we long to see that. And uh, certainly in the free church, that's always a great burden and longing in the hearts of our brethren to see the Lord crown the preaching (coughs) with blessed success. And what a view of Christ there is there in that kind of language, because Christ finished his course and he ran the race to the very end and then he was crowned. The language here is very similar to Hebrews 1 where Paul says, let us run with patience the race set before us, looking on to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God. Christ is crowned. And the gospel needs to be crowned with success and the blessing of God even in the face of its enemies. In the very face of those who would be in combat against it. We pray for that. That the Lord will cause His word to run and be glorified. And then the third and the final thought here is that of the miracle. Because it says there, At the end of verse number one, even as it is with you. And so what he's talking about there in that little part of the verse, even as it is with you, is the fact that these Thessalonians are a people who've had a work done in their hearts. And and the miracle of grace has been wrought in their lives. And when Paul says, pray that the word of the Lord may run and be crowned, he then says, even as it is with you, Pray that what happened to you will happen with others. Let me ask you a question, friend. 
Have you prayed that way today? I don't want you to feel guilty. I'm just asking you a question. Have you thought today of what the Lord did for you? And are you asking the Lord to do the same for others? That's what, that's what Paul, or, yeah, Paul is saying here. Pray about this matter of the Word of God, the message, under the metaphor of the runner in the race, being running swiftly, surely, reaching its goal, its target, being crowned with success, because that's what happened to you. And so, what an incentive there is here to these Thessalonians to pray for Paul, because he's simply asking them, as I've put it, to pray that the same thing will happen to others. If you turn to 1 Thessalonians 1, you'll notice in verse number 8 these words, for from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God were to spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. Uh, those words, from you sounded out the word of the Lord, the, the word uh, sounded uh, signifies an echo. And Paul, uh, Paul here is thinking about the sounding board. And we have all heard of that. I don't know whether you've ever seen a sounding board or not, but that's the idea in that expression from you sounded out the word of the Lord. A sounding board was the old way before we got one of these things uh, to strengthen the sound of a preacher, whoever is speaking, so that the word that he says is actually um, amplified, it's reinforced, and then it is heard by more people. You know, there have been preachers in history who would never have needed this system. They must have had wonderful voices. I, I, I remember reading the, the, the Life of George Whitfield by Arnold Dallimore, and I was thrilled at one point. This is when I was living in America, and, because George Whitfield preached in Philadelphia an awful lot. There's actually a statue of him at one of the universities there. It's a wonder it still stands, but thank God it's still standing. But anyhow... When Whitfield was in Philadelphia, he was preaching on the steps of the courthouse, and Benjamin Franklin, who was a contemporary of, of Whitfield's, and wasn't a saved man, but a great admirer of Whitfield's voice and oratory, one day decided he was going to test this man's voice. So there's Whitfield preaching to thousands of people. Now, you would know that if you've got thousands of people in front, you, in front of you, their bodies will absorb a lot of sound. That's a fact. And so Benjamin Franklin kept walking backwards to see how far he would have to go until he wouldn't hear Whitfield. And he kept walking down in the city of Philadelphia from the courthouse steps where Whitfield was, right down and down toward the Delaware River. And at half a mile, he could hear Whitfield clearly. They say that Whitfield had the, a voice like a silver bell. He could be heard plainly at half a mile. Those men were specially gifted. Creatures like me don't have that kind of voice. But God gave him a mighty voice. The same was Spurgeon. You've never heard the story of Spurgeon when they're building the tabernacle 
And he entered the tabernacle one day and the workmen were still there. And one, he didn't know there was a man. He went in after they'd all gone home, he thought. And he just stood in some particular part of that unfinished building and he, he called out, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And he didn't know there was a man still up somewhere in the building working. And the man heard that verse and was converted in the spot. It's a true story. And so, this is the idea here, the Word of God sounding out. Some men don't need a soundboard, but uh, certainly Paul used a, a term here that signifies he knew what a sounding board was. You see, it's not the sounding board that produces the sound. The sounding board receives the sound, reinforces it, and then sends it on. And so here's the question. And the question has been saved, and the question becomes a sounding board. That's the point. The metaphor of the sounding board here is applied to the child of God. From you sounded out the word of the Lord. There it is again. From you sounded out the word of the Lord. Christians should be like sounding boards, amplifying the message. And doing so not only merely by speaking, but by how they live. How their characters, their behavior, and so forth cause others to take note and to see what the gospel really is. To see its power, to see its redemptive value, to see how it changes lives. That's what happened here. And so when Paul says to these same people, this same church, uh, to pray for him that the word of the Lord would run and be glorified. Then he says this, even as it is with you, what it has done for you, pray that it will do the same for others. That's the miracle of grace. And may the Lord just take this tonight and help us to pray over this, to pray over this message and to pray over the word that we have heard on a Sunday or whenever it might have been, to pray over that message uh, that is why Spurgeon, may I just say this, that's why Spurgeon at his weekly prayer meeting on a Monday night, and actually old Pastor Paisley followed that tradition. That's why our prayer meeting here in this church for years was on a Monday night. He took the, the, the pattern from Spurgeon because Spurgeon believed that uh, as the week goes on, well, we're all kind of forgetful. And we may not remember the message is clearly on Wednesday or Thursday as we do on Monday. I hope you remember it on Monday, never mind later in the week. But that's why he had his prayer meeting on a Monday. And so pray over the Word of God that Dr. Pollock preached. Pray over the Word of God that our Sunday school teachers bring every Sunday. That our children's workers bring on Friday nights, etc., etc. Pray over the Word that's preached in the open air. That it may run and be glorified. And I trust God will help us to do that even tonight in the time of prayer that will come now a little later. Let's just bow now together before we sing a verse or two of another hymn. Father in heaven, we commend our ways to thee. And we thank thee for this thy word, for all that we have seen in these verses. They're familiar to us, Lord, and we've thought about them many a time. But, O oh Lord, may their message, their impact be powerfully felt in our hearts tonight, and may thy people, as they get down to prayer, pray as is exhorted here by the apostle, 
And Lord, we do ask that the word of God preached by thy servant last week, or the word of God that goes out from here at any time, or throughout our little denomination, at home in the homeland on the mission fields, will run and be crowned with success. O Lord, do these things. Save souls, O Lord. Bring sinners to the Savior. Lord, what the gospel has done for us, we want others to experience the same. Hear and answer prayer. And bless us now, we pray. Guide us this night in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen.